episode 14 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Satine Phoenix, host of D&D Melt, a role-playing community, which you can find more information about at meltcomics.com. You can also find Satine's art at satinephoenix.net. So without further ado, hi Satine, how's it going? Hi, it's going quite well, thanks. Uh, before we get on with the questions, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, D&D Melt. Um, I'm uh, not originally from uh, Canada, and one of the first things that I wanted to try to get into when I came here was uh, role-playing, but I found it really difficult to find a another group of people that I could role-play with, because for the most part, um, role-players are fairly insular characters, and, <laughs> and, and so meeting people is difficult, so... Um, is that part of what inspired you to put together a uh, community? Yeah, pretty much. I'm hyper-social, so I need to be around a lot of people, um, a lot, <laughs> um, especially since I draw for a living and sit at home by myself. So um, I Meltdown found out that I play Dungeons & Dragons, and they're like, well, we have a group here, but they're not really, they need like a brood mother to like wrangle them. And um, I just took over, and um, I've been looking for a community of people like me who also like to go outside. So um, that's basically what I've attracted over at Meltdown Comics. So we're there twice a week. Um, we pretty much have regulars, and um, we're all people who just want to be outside of our houses <laughs> and right. play Death of the Dragons. Right, yeah, I, I haven't played a lot in uh, sort of public places aside from at... Uh, conventions, uh, do you find that that makes things a little different, or does it only take a couple of minutes till people sort of forget they're in a public place and then uh, proceeds as normal? Um, I'm an exhibitionist, so I kind of like role-playing and doing things out in public, so um, I think it's a little more casual. People don't take it so seriously. Right. Um, well, I mean, mostly we have one-shots. We've got a couple campaigns that are ongoing, but um, you know, one table will have to go to the bathroom and walk by the other table and they'll peek in and then everyone there will stop and exclaim all the cool things that just happened. And I, I really like that. Right. Yeah, that's something you don't often get is you don't often get an audience for your role-playing awesomeness. You know, you only get the people that are in the game and sometimes your role-playing awesomeness is lost because, you know, you're actually doing something that is... It's, it's bad for the characters, right? So they can't necessarily appreciate, you know, what a great villain you're being or, or something like that. So I guess for an exhibitionist, having uh, someone sort of standing by and quietly cheering is, uh, could be satisfying. But, uh, but yeah, as I said, I haven't done a lot in that, uh, in that sort of format. One of the downsides, I guess, is do you find it sometimes noisy, like the noise coming over from, from other tables? Um, yeah, Meltdown opened up their next-door area called the Annex, and um, we probably played there three or four times, and now we only have one table at a time there. It's just too much echo. I mean, we're thinking of actually building a partition that'll absorb the sound because we really like having as many tables there as possible. But, yeah, it, it does interfere a bit. When we did the charity game in January, um, the theater area, we had four different tables, and um, each table was streaming. And a lot of the people were actors, so that got pretty loud. <laughs> yeah, I, for some reason, there just seem to be people that uh, that like to be like extra, extra loud. So you start talking, you have to talk a little louder, then they talk a little louder, and you have to talk a little louder, <laughs> and then they talk a little louder, and so you just give up because it's just far too loud. But that, if I was going to say there was one thing that I found really challenging about 
a convention situation is that you know that extra loudness is really difficult to play out a you know like a really subtle um, scene or something that requires quietness and stealth when you've got people yelling I kill the bugbear with my claymore <laughs> and then the kid they're all yelling and screaming and swearing fealty to the king or you know firing off their M60 or whatever it might happen to be you know like that's something that can sometimes, at least I find, can sometimes do something for the uh, for the mood. But uh, have you? How? What sort of size um, groups do you generally play there? Because I know that in a in a commercial setting, you know, there's always the the, the pressure to include as many people as possible, uh, so that you first of all, so you can clear your overheads. But but second of all, to you know, get as as many people in um, in the sort of the commercial environment as as possible. Do you do you find that that changes the nature of the the game? Yeah. Um well, when we first started, we there was only one or two dungeon masters, and um, so we tried to cram everybody into a table. We had like eight to ten people, and it just got really exhausting after a couple of weeks. And so I learned how to dungeon master, and now we'll have about I don't know up to four or five tables with about four or five players each, right. and that's not so bad. We I my I, I prefer three people at a table. Um, and Meltdown Comics is enormous. It's like right. three huge rooms. So I'm really good at organizing and like interior decorating. So I can move everybody in appropriate places so they don't interfere. But um, shawls over all of the lamps and uh, an incense burning and that sort of thing. Well, they have vaulted ceilings. So oh, okay. <laughs> right, so do on that then. Um, Alrighty. That's so, at my house. <laughs> right, and, and they can find that information about that. It's uh, meetups.com slash dndmelt. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And on top of being in charge of D&D Melt, um, you're also putting together a project, Girls of Geekdom, for a calendar for, uh, for next year. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I'm actually uh, – I'm not putting it together. I'm just supporting it and being in it. But um, Sean from Seancastic Podcast – he and his wife, who's, um, she does the popcyclebobbles.com or something like that. But she takes, like, comic books and then, like, cuts them up and then makes jewelry out of them. But they decided to do a geek calendar because there's only one, I think, with geek girls in it. Um, and then they approached me and were like, we want you to be a part of this, um, myself and, like, a bunch of other people. And then... Uh, we got uh, a couple other LA girls involved and did a Kickstarter, and we got double funded. So we asked for fifteen thousand. We ended up getting thirty thousand, and man, I was so happy. I'm still happy. <laughs> Great. So, what month are you? I'm January, <laughs> and I'm playing um, Didi from the Sandman comics, The Death, The High Cost of Living. Oh, nice. Um, so, you're yeah. all, all the girls are in costume. Yeah, so um, Chloe Dykstra is going to be um, the 11th Doctor from Doctor Who. Right. And um, there's a mermaid um, Dodger from uh, her YouTube is Press Heart to Continue. And she's going to be Kerrigan from a, a video game. I'm not, I don't know. Starcraft, I think it is. Yeah. Um yeah, so, and there's, like, a tiefling, and there's all sorts of nerdy things. <laughs> but then one of the cool things, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but it's, like, the Christmas um, one where we all get together as characters, as our Dungeons & Dragons characters. Right. 
I won't say anything more than that, but I'm going to be actually like putting a mirror costume together so I can cosplay my, I hit it with my axe character. Nice. Is that the first time you've done that? Yeah. I mean, I, my friends are, my best friends do Time of the Fairies, and we have this thing here in L.A. called uh, Labyrinth of Jareth, where people just get like as dressed up as they possibly can in that labyrinth style. Right. Um, then they have like a whole troop of um, acrobatic elves. He's like, <laughs> the they, it's really beautiful. They've got like a troop of goblins, and um, so I throw together like cosplay, like fantasy elvish cosplay anyway. Right. So this is just going to be the best. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, just so that people can get to know a little bit more about your role playing background, then how long have you been a role player? I've been role playing since I was fifteen, so seventeen years. I did take a break for a little while. Yeah, I was talking with Zach about that last time. I think that uh, when it comes to counting your years of, of role playing, I think essentially, regardless of whether we're talking about you know longevity in the in the hobby, I think that once you're a role player, you're always a role player. You know, you always get it. it's like riding a bicycle, right? You can never really forget what it's like to be be a role player. So I, I mean, I started role playing probably when I was. 10 or 11 I would imagine so I've been at it for you know 20 long time yeah yeah. I'm just thinking now wow that's that's like 30 I I was going to say 20 years but I realized no that's 30 years Um, but uh, you say it out loud yeah that's right yeah and uh, and so I think that it's like you know I gave the example of like a lap, being a lapsed Catholic you know like you're always going to be a Catholic it's just a matter of whether you're practicing or not so in that respect I think you can count every year from the first time you sort of seriously played and rolled out your first character to uh, to now so so what did you start well, playing? I started playing uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is um, my my family we would play um, just like card games and then my dad opened this box in the in the our little storage area and it had all sorts of stuff from like 1980 right. and um so there i think it was the original red box i don't remember i don't know what happened to him i think my ex ex-husband um has the books i'm very disturbed about it <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> he got the role-playing books in the divorce uh, yeah. so, so was that the box that had the little uh cardboard counters you had to cut out and put in the envelope or was that the uh, one that actually had the dice that would uh, slowly break down over time they had a half-life of about six months and then the corner started coming off and things like that well by the time i got to it it was just books and papers (laughs) so i think i was probably 10 when that happened and then um i just remember seeing the books on the shelf and then one of my friends in high school i don't even know how it came up but he was this phenomenal dungeon master, and it was me or myself, um, him, and another friend of ours. And we would play every day at school. After school, um, we got made fun of a lot. But but you know what's funny? We actually would play right before theater, right. so we were playing in public, yes. and people were walking around around us. So maybe that's why. Yeah, you can't, you can't afford to be different in high school, really. I, I was 100% different in high school, <laughs> but I was active, so that, oh, that I don't know how I found time to dungeon ma- or to role play, honestly. Yeah, I, I sometimes think about that in terms of my uh, un- in university, um, not so much in high school, but uh, you know how you manage to fit all of that stuff into the day. You know, like I just I look back and I think, how did I manage to do that and that and that as well, and still you know you know still find time for three other things. You know, just I can't. 
imagine uh, you know how that would uh, how I could make that work today. But, uh, but yeah, so you, you played in high school and uh, you played with a couple of people, and then that was Dungeons and Dragons, and then you played. Um, I played through college um, in San Francisco, and that was pretty fun. Um, I ended up marrying a phenomenal dungeon master, so I got really, really lucky. And um, I, I dropped out of college in like 2002 to become a stripper, and um, I played it a little bit, but then my stripper friends got weird, and I was like, oh, I want to fit in. And then after I started doing porn, I decided that I was stupid. They got weird, and you decided you wanted to fit in? Yeah, they're like, oh, role-playing is dumb. And I'm like, you know what? Getting high on cocaine is dumb. Yeah. Like, that's really dumb. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and, and role-play and have a good time in my life. Right. Oh, fair enough, too. I think that, uh, I mean, a horse is for courses, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know too many people have the choice of, mm, shall I do cocaine? Shall I go role-playing? <laughs> role-playing is the one. Those two usually don't, you know, don't go together. Um so, so you did, and that was still Dungeons and Dragons, though, when you were sort of making that uh, drop. When you dropped out of college and went into stripping. Yeah, you see, I'm pretty hardcore Dungeons and Dragons. I'm like a fanatic when it comes to that. I don't really vary. I have. I don't enjoy it very much because I don't know. It's like it's part of my personal tradition. Is I like elves and rogues, and there has to be dragons in there somewhere, and magic. Like, I need that. I've played other games like um, Cyberpunk and, oh, I don't know. Um, I almost played Cthulhu once. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. (laughs) Well, that's not not an unusual... not an unusual sort of take on role-playing. I think there are a lot of people that, that picked up first edition Dungeons and & Dragons and, and never really changed from that. And uh, in my experience, there's real role-playing snobbery, right? You've got people that are like, Dungeons & Dragons, you are such a child. I know. <laughs> find a better game. God, Dungeons & Dragons still? Okay, you know, that's like watching cartoons. You need to start watching The Wire. You need to start playing Game X, right? You need to... Yeah. And there's real... And it, and, it, and it drives me mental because it just doesn't make any difference to me. I like everything about it, but I can't play in a game that I'm running. Like I would Game Master for you. <laughs> I totally would. Well, yeah, I, I, I love playing, but I'm a game master. I don't get a chance to do much other than other than game other than game master. So it's really yeah. I love I, so I love playing the characters, but you don't quite get that full experience. In a couple of the previous episodes, I introduced this idea of you know having a role playing soulmate. You know, you find a game that just fits <sighs> you, and 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 you, <laughs> you stick with it. You know, you don't like to to stray, and and you try other things, but nothing really fits you well. And and it sounds like for you that that uh, that. Dungeons and Dragons is that, you know, that role-playing soulmate, if there is such a thing. It is. It really is. And I have a really hard time because I love the freedom of uh, AD&D and Second, um, but I don't know. I've been playing 4th Edition, and when I play 4th Edition, I play it, it with the role-playing mindset of all the Dungeon Masters before me that I've played with, which is... It's it, the the content of the books doesn't matter. It's what's going on with the characters and what the dungeon master says. Right. You know, if dungeon master says roll over this, then I roll over that. If the dungeon master says roll under this, roll under that. I tell the dungeon master what I want to do um, versus what skill I want to use to come up with a solution. Sure. Yeah. That uh, it almost sounds like 
what you liked most about Dungeons and Dragons is not so much the system but the setting. Would that be accurate? Um, I think it would be more the story because I've played different um, like Dark Sun and Eberron. Um, I've, well, I've played all of them, but I didn't really pay attention too much about like those details. Right. You know, like the, the politics of it. I paid more attention to like, okay, these are our surroundings. This, these are the issues of the moment. Right. Uh, but okay. then I never really played long campaigns before. Right. So. Right. Because one of the uh, the things about role playing, at least in my opinion, is that it's it's a it's a, uh, it's a spectrum. At one end, you've got the really uh, hardcore rules intensive uh, type games that go for emulation of reality, and then at the other end of the scale, you've got uh, games like, say, Fiasco or Theatrics, where everything is on the narrative and the rules to a larger or a lesser degree are irrelevant. It's just whatever makes the story goes best and then everything else fits somewhere along that continuum. But you seem to have a, a strange, uh, or interesting, I should say, I don't want to say strange, because uh, uh, <laughs> an interesting, I'm trying to be inclusive here, an interesting take where you're interested in the sort of the rules at the Dungeons and Dragons end, but you're more interested in the free-form uh, narrative that comes from the other end of the, the spectrum. Have you thought about it in those terms before? Yeah, actually I have. Um, I, I use the books as a guide. You know, like the books are kind of like, okay, these are like basic rules, and they're kind of good for people that play with different people. You know, it's kind of like, a, like the encounters thing. Right. Um, so that everybody's on the same page, follow the rules exactly. But if you're just playing with your friends, you know, it's kind of like, these are general rules, and, you know, if the Dungeon Master wants to fiddle with them, not, whatever. Actually, Keith Baker and I are actually making um, a system that is more, that is fantasy-based, but um, more story more character. Okay, so the emphasis is more on the on the narrative and and telling interesting stories involving your characters than finding rules to help them, you know, as accurately as possible um, turn their actions into to rolls of the dice and so forth. Oh my gosh, I had a fight with one of my players. I think this is Sunday this week. All right. <laughs> um, so everybody's in the. Um, Everyone had to leave their weapons with the receptionist for this, like, tiefling um, necromancer chick. Right. And um, the, there was one player who had, uh, he was a ranger, and he had a bow and arrow, and he had to leave it there. Everyone else had some magical thing. And um, they get in, and they have to fight her minions, and he gets so frustrated, and he actually, like, threw his hands in the air. And I've played with this guy a lot, and we're, and he dungeon masters for us, but he's one of those hyper rules based people where he loves fourth edition because you have all these powers and you can like, okay, with my bow and arrow, I can do a B C, um, per encounter daily at will, blah, 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 blah. Right. And it, his, I think I blew up his brain. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't think outside of the box where he's got these skills and if he just suggests something, I could say, okay, well, then use that power that you want to use or you would have used and then take a negative or whatever. Right. I, that 
that's phenomenal to me. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of uh, goes a little bit back to what we were saying before about you know this idea of you've got the simulation on one end where you've got some really strict rules and those rules help to define reality and you've got to play by those because if you don't play by those you know then your brain's going to blow up like you're suggesting right but but <laughs> but, but uh, this same this scenario uh, is sort of played out at the other end of the spectrum as well where you know you say well you know these are I mean we're in a way much more realistically than the simulation end because uh, in reality, you know, your, your ranger wouldn't just do this and then suddenly have no idea of how to do it. Again, that doesn't make exactly. any sense, right? Like, so it's this strange juxtaposition of, of uh, you know, hard and fast rules and wanting to simulate reality as much as possible and then just throwing reality out the window when you've, you've used up this special ability that you have. Suddenly you don't know anything about it. You're just as bad at it as the next person, which makes which makes no sense at all. Yeah, I, that's why I like Dungeons & Dragons, because, well, I mean, I like video games, but I like Dungeons & Dragons because the world is bigger, the physics is bigger, the possibilities are, are giant. Yes. Um, you actually play with your imagination. I don't need minis. I like them because they're pretty, and I like pretty things, but, like, I don't need them. I can imagine everything. Yeah. You know, if I can explain how I could make my character parkour up a wall, like, why wouldn't I be able to do it if I got the right stats? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, it's called the Dungeon Master's Guide for a reason, right? It's not the Dungeon Master's rule book. Like, so, you know, it's... and. And, and again, and I think this is probably where the most interest for me comes when we're discussing this, but Gary Gygax was very, uh, like his his background, you know, was with miniatures gaming and him and Dave Arneson and Chainmail, you know, they put together this game from the sort of tactical um, end of things. And he, you know, there's an article, I'm not sure if you've read it or, or heard about it, where he has, um, where he sort of talks about, you know, people are too into the actual role-playing aspect of it, and not enough of the, not not enough into the sort of puzzle solving and using your your character as a tool, end of, uh, as using your character too much, not enough as a tool, and you know, how do you feel about that uh, coming from the guy that, that wrote the game? Yeah, that's. I mean, that quote should be on every nerd shirt ever because I just found out about the role-playing versus role-playing. Yeah. Like, I just found that out, um, like, a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it really explains it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's real, yeah, I, I'm very much at the, uh, I'm not quite all the way to, to Amber Diceless, um, on the, on that spectrum, but I'm much more in the character development, because, um, at least for me anyway, when I read a, when I read a novel, I mean, I like to read crime fiction, but. You know, there's there are only so many different ways that somebody can be murdered, and I really don't actually care that that much about it. What, and, I, and I've said it before, but you know, all of the characters in the books, those are the unique snowflakes, right? The stories are not they're not unique. There are only six different stories you can tell um, in one variation or another. So the the magic has got to come from the character, and I feel the same way about the about the role playing game. I I don't um, dislike dungeon crawls. Uh, but if the emphasis just go in here, kill that monster, go there, kill that monster, go there, get, the, get this gold, go back, you know, go up a level or whatever, I think that's all, to me, that's almost a different game than, say, you know, playing out, uh, taking the time to really think about, you know, what your character will do in a situation, not really any character interactions, not any interactions between the players and the and the NPCs, that, that sort of thing. It almost feels like a different different game to me, and um, 
Yeah. Um, that idea of role playing and role playing, I think, probably perfectly describes you know these two different ends of the of the spectrum. You know, in terms of uh, the type of games that you can that you can get into. Yeah. So it's kind of this weird thing where I I never have done a dungeon crawl. I've never played a dungeon crawl, but I, I mean, I have, but I haven't. Um, I've been out of D&D Melt for like three weeks with my like personal issues. And I come back and a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, we're doing these things where we're just fighting. And then at the end, everybody explodes or the world ends or something. And, and it's terrible. Um, at D&D Melt, we've, I don't know if I've done it or, or just, it just, happen that way but um each game is like an episode in a really long um event like a, a long campaign that doesn't exist right does that make sense sure. yeah it's uh, a, a continuation of the characters perhaps not necessarily the same story same characters different tables different parts of the world sometimes it's pre sometimes it's like like you know ages after but um i don't know all the dungeon masters that i play with we all kind of handle it, yes. you know? Like, okay, we're going to do a one-shot right now, and I'm just going to make it up as I go along. Mm-hmm. And I've got my monster manual, and I've got, like, you know, my basic minimal things. And we make it up, and they, I find that the characters will create the story out of whatever you hand them. And then from there, the dungeon master can, like, feed it. So, yeah, you have a dungeon crawl. You have a pre-made adventure, that's fine, but you don't have to make it so stiff. Right. And that's where the interest comes is when the characters interact with the story and take it in a different direction altogether, right? Yeah. You've got to, you have to, at least to my way of thinking, you have to allow for your story to be sufficiently flexible, but with enough detail that when the characters start interacting with it, it, it changes it. And it makes it more interesting, not only for them, but also for you as the as the game master. You try to keep the players on rails, and you know you might as well be writing a novel about what you think is going to happen, rather than actually you know allowing people the opportunity to sort of push and pull at your story and change it and take it in a different direction. You know, I think that if you, that a story on rails doesn't doesn't have the same appeal or the same lasting, you know, doesn't have a, such a good, um, won't last in the player's mind as something which is just, you know, I go here, I kill that, I go here, I kill that, and then we finished, and that's it. Yeah, that's why I like Keith Baker's stuff is because it really, um, he's like, okay, here's the adventure. He's been writing adventures for our Celebrity Dungeons & Dragons charity right. game, right? and he's, he's like, all right, these are all the possibilities of everything that could happen, and there's so he can see so wide yeah. <laughs> that you, he can actually keep the story going and keep it really interesting and give it to the dungeon masters like the morning of. Right. Yeah, the, I think part of that probably comes from experience, but having the ability to to see widely and figure out different paths that people can follow but still keep it cohesive is, I think, probably comes down to... Uh, this idea, well, one of the questions I've got on the list then, we'll do it out of order, but, um, you know, if you could just be a player or a GM, which would you choose and why? Well, I think I would be a, a game master because I really like giving. I'm kind of a giving person, and I like to see the way, um, the look on people's face when 
something amazing happens in their head, <laughs> like when they're paying attention and, and like, oh, well, maybe this is a possibility of, you know, like when people are figuring things out or when they're working together, like I think I get more enjoyment of watching people um, deal with things. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm on the game master end there. I'm not sure if that's necessarily uh, the, the way that I that I feel about game mastering so much as I, I like the idea of setting things up and just seeing seeing what will happen, like a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, like I've got all this stuff going on. I wonder what I wonder what's going to happen. And I also a couple of things that sometimes happen are, are really what keep me coming back to game mastering. The first thing is, and I was talking uh, with uh, James um, Malajewski on the last episode, oh, not last episode, uh, episode 12, and we were saying how, you know, the best moment for us, or one of the two best moments for us is when an NPC you've just kind of roughly sketched out suddenly comes to life and starts sort of speaking through you. That's, you know, that for yeah. me, that's the, that's the magic, as a game master anyway, not so much as a player, but as a game master, that's the, that's the magic for me. When that starts to happen, you know, like a voice comes to you and you're doing the actions, you're doing all that type yeah. of stuff, you know, that's, the, that's really the magic. And uh, that's sort of what keeps me coming back to, um, to game mastering. You know? And it's, it's not something you can force either, right? No, I think it's really important um, for game masters to watch other game masters. So I'm very fortunate. I mean, I grew up with really amazing character um, and or NPC enhancing dungeon masters, but Keep is awesome with his voices. Zach is amazing. Um, he's th- Those are my two absolute favorites, and I kind of have learned everything that I know from them, watching how they pace, watching how they they take the character and all you know, it's like whatever you're going to say, if you just add a little bit of flavor to it, it changes the mood. Uh, Keith was this hag once, and he actually scared me. Like, I, my chest was pounding, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm really frightened, and I want to throw up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things that we talked about fear. Like, some a, a game master that can actually inspire fear is... Uh, is you know is definitely top shelf. Part of that comes, I guess, from the investment that the players have in their character as well. But you know, being able to put together fear, I think that's the hardest emotion to emulate in people because you know to actually get them to feel like they're in danger <laughs> and to be able to, to be sufficiently invested in their character to to get that visceral response is uh, is, is something else. The other the other great moment about being a dungeon master is when you, you've got all these little islands of preparation and you, you the, the characters are moving between them and then all of a sudden because of the things that the characters have said and the way they've played suddenly you start to see connections forming between these uh between these little islands and you know the characters are going to go there and you know that that's going to play out like that and that's going to play out like that and you get suddenly you get a feeling for how your whole story is going to fit together and you can you can see that through the end and these connections which were which you hadn't made before suddenly all come together and this this great story that was so much better than you you thought you were able to produce suddenly you know forms itself and the and the characters uh, go through it that's that's my uh, my other favorite moment in in game mastering and i think as a player you don't you get a different experience, but you don't quite get that same. Um, you don't get that same feeling of, of having created things, right? Like as a as a as a character, you can, you can make one character, but as a game master, you can be a thousand, right? Like plus you've got the story, plus that's yeah. Kind of and and I think that 
really, when, when I ask that question, I've only had one person that's really vacillated about it, but I think that just like either you get role-playing or you don't, I think that you're either a game master at heart or not. You, you, can, you do it, and it's really hard, and you'd really rather not do it, or you just do it, and you, and you love it, and, and you know that that's what you would be if you had to choose. Yeah, I think I'm a storyteller. And um, I feel like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever role-playing system anyone wants to use, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure, you know? Um, So, yeah. Uh, Back to the fear thing. Apparently, I'm really scary. And the moment that people sit down at my table now, well, first they call it the David Lynch Adventures. Right. Um, uh, I started assigning colors to things. And um, the colors would have an emotion assigned to it. And people started freaking out. I gave them... They ended up spending like 20 minutes in this lust hallway on accident. And they kept failing their saving throws so they couldn't get out of it. And so we had this like tiefling, dragonborn, like, like love fest. And it was really unexpected. And it really put the fear of God in them. The fear of Paylor. That's the... <laughs> Paylor is D&D God. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Pay- yeah. Paylor, I, I haven't really looked, I'm not all that familiar with the pantheon of, of gods, but Paylor is lawful good, right? Yeah. Right, and he's Basically, the son. He's, yeah, son. Um, last night we decided he has a beard and like a glowing, like Mayan symbolic looking sun behind his head. Right. <laughs> and do you, do you carry that? that mythos from one game to the next within your sort of melt group? Like, I know that they've got this thing, and I've never played 4th edition, let alone been involved in one of these campaigns, but I've read about it, these living campaigns where, you know, every everything just needs to stay in its place and everybody's on the same on the same page. Is that something you guys try to do at melt, or is that just, does that just happen organically? Everything happened organically. It's, um... Basically, we really like it when players are passionate like everybody there is passionate about something and we all and if somebody goes on and on about something we're just like that's awesome and we're going to join you in this excitement right yeah so that's how paylor came because um we had a he's kind of a zealot about it yeah yeah. Um, yeah for sure but yeah so do you think that the reason why there are so few women that are game masters is because they prefer to immerse themselves in in one character because they want to empathize with a in- single entity rather than spread themselves thinly over a whole bunch. Because I know that when women talk, they're very focused on what other women are saying, whereas men will write on the computer, they'll you know they'll check their email, they'll you know fold the laundry, they'll do all. The- I mean, my wife is always accusing me of this. She's like, "Can't do you have, have your face buried in that all the time?" I'm like, I can do more than one thing at once. They say that you know men can't multitask, but look, I'm doing it. But I mean, but obviously, judging by her reaction, sometimes I'm really not. But but do you think that that's why women, that why women game masters are so much rarer than they than uh, they should be as prepared to the proportion of women that do role play? I think that it's the boys' fault. <laughs> I think it's it's um, guys being over like. They're being so ruly, make it seem much more complicated. I was frightened, frightened, like scared in my fingertips about dungeon mastering, but I had to do it because, well, we needed another dungeon master. Um, And once I figured out how to do it, I was like, wow, I have not done this for my entire, like, youth or into adulthood. How did I never do this? Oh, yeah. 
it's because guys make it seem really complicated. <laughs> right, so you think that it's probably more a case of the way that, that uh, girls have been conditioned rather than any particular gender bias and the desire to be a game master or dungeon master? Yeah, like, I mean, a lot of my male friends who are game masters take pride on how complicated they make things. I'm not saying this is as a judgment statement. I'm saying this is an observation. And it's funny if you, like, the guys are like, oh, yeah, like, they, don't, they just don't know all the calculations I'm doing in my head and blah, blah, blah. And, and a lot of the girls I know just don't want to do that. <laughs> Math is hard. It's not for girls. But, but it's, not, it's not like that at all. <laughs> no, no not, not, for telling it, not for telling a good story, it certainly isn't, no. Yeah, so I think... The boys make it seem complicated, and the girls get um, intimidated by it. And also, you know, you're worried about people judging you when you're dungeon mastering. You know, like, are you doing well enough? And I know that's something... I I can only say my own perspective. I can't speak for all women everywhere. But um, that was a fear that I had. I was like, what if I'm not doing well enough? And it's like, wow. Then I just thought about acting. It's like, well, they don't know what I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So... I just act as if, then it'll be fine. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, what's your favorite book or supplement? Uh, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, like a like a core rule book. It could just be something that you really like. You don't play it, maybe, but uh, you know, you really like the way it looks, or um, just something about it keeps you going back to it. Aside from Victoria, of course. Oh yes, yes. Um, I actually only read what I need to read. <laughs> um, but I do keep on hand a bunch of monster manuals because I'm always playing games off the cuff, like right when I need to. And, um, I do like a random page, um, picking of monster manuals. So I think the more I have, the more I get to play with because otherwise I just keep picking the same like orcs, gnolls, goblins, and that can get kind of boring. Sure. But um, they've made these amazing monster manuals that just are so imaginative. And um, when I first started reading them in 95, they were very simple. And now they, like, really go into what this monster is all about. Like, the yeah. history of the monster. And, um, like, uh, there's one with villains. I think it's, like, a Neverwinter book that I got. Um, I can't remember the name offhand right now. Um and I just otherwise I would tell you <laughs> um, that one's great because it has like groups of villains, so like um, a bunch of bandits or like another adventuring team stats and like drive and and history. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that was always something that was missing for me from the first Monster Manual, and also from the first Dungeon Master's Guide. As I always. I, whenever I put together a dungeon crawl, because at that time I hadn't really ever seen or sort of thought about any other way to play, so I was sort of hemmed in by um, having no role model or having doesn't didn't even occur to me that I could play differently, like I, there was any such that I could do something in a different way. So I'd always sit down and I'd put together these these dungeon crawls, right? And I'd try and have interesting characters and and, and NPC interactions and stuff like that. But I always got to the point where I'm like, well. What are these monsters doing? Like, why are they just uh, hanging out underground in this room? Like, why don't they go out and see the world? Why don't they try and find other 
ogres to fall in love with and go and you know watch sunsets with? Why are they just sitting there on their pallets? They're either asleep or they're eating some other monster, <laughs> or they're just like lo- they're just like looming up at the doorway. Like, what are they doing in the meantime? They're kind of like <laughs> actors waiting for their cue, right? Like, oh, here comes some more adventurers. All right, oh, where's my club? You know, where's my gold pieces in a in a, in a leather satchel? I better tuck that under my bed now. And and you know, and I and I never quite understood. You know what it was they're actually getting at, and although I've not read the book that you're uh, that you're talking about, having this idea of the monsters themselves having a backstory can't certainly can't uh, hurt, and that's one of the the main things that I endorse in my book is to to really think about the backstory because the the backstory of all the things you've got going on in your game is really going to inform. You know the way that you play these characters is going to, and it's going to make things interesting. Because if everything is just one-dimensional, like it's just a backdrop that's drawn, and there's nothing behind that, then it can. I don't think it, as a game master, it doesn't encourage you to describe things in depth. But as yeah. as a player, you know, you can sort of you you break that fourth wall, right? Like if there's just nothing there ever, then you never get the feeling that you're in a you know like an experience as opposed to a board game where there's no where there's no board, and. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you said previously about miniatures, I never, I, I really like Warhammer and I like realistic um, wargaming, but I never, never felt comfortable with miniatures in role playing games. Like I might occasionally draw a little map with some cross on field, but I never had any of those, um, never had miniatures or, or maps or anything like that. And so, and you feel, and you, you could give or take them yourself? Yeah, I feel like, well, you know, we're all playing 4th edition. That's kind of our house yeah. thing over at Meltdown. Um, it just takes forever to get through a, an encounter. And you've got, like, I mean, it's I, the way I use it, um, I'll have my minis, and I have a map of what's going on just for visual aid. But I, I kind of don't want them to be moving pieces around the board. You know, like, I want them to see it if maybe there's a lot going on and I can't, I forget to explain something. At least it's there in front. So that's not so bad. Um, Players like it to be personal, so that's nice to have their own figure there, you know. And if you really want to super hyper explain something, then you move it around. But in, like, a fighting sequence, it's just, like, oh, it's just annoying to me. (laughs) Yeah. Even though I like war games, and I like role playing. I've never really been comfortable with the idea of having, uh, you know, miniatures within a uh, within a role playing game. And part of that comes down to I wonder. It just feels almost like that restricts where my imagination can go because somebody's right there. There's this many feet to that person. There's this many feet to that person, or hexes or squares, or however you you figure it. And then I can do this and I can do that, and it becomes a like a, almost like a game of Robo Rally. I'm not sure if you've ever played Robo Rally before, but you know you can <laughs> no. you, you you can you play your cards. You can move a certain number of steps. But I and I, and I deliberately didn't have any of that stuff in my book. First of all, I I like the the game to go sort of role playing and role play through the combat, and then role playing after the combat. But in uh, Dungeons and Dragons and some other games, you go role play, role play, role play, stop, uh, combat, move you guys around, roll the dice, and then once that's finished. Role play, role play, role play, and I'd like to. And I created a cinematic sort of system where any uh, combat can be resolved with only three dice rolls, or perhaps a couple more, depending on how e- evenly matched the, the combatants are. And I think that that's all part of the experience because when you you, know, you watch a film out on television, you know the combats, you know they go, 
you know, some some films put themselves, you know, out there as having long combat scenes like Transport or something like that, you know, where they're, they're selling the fight. But for the most part, it's it's part of the overall narrative. It's not the narrative. And if you're playing a game where the combat takes half the time or quarter of the time of your whole role-playing experience, and I, for me, that's too much. And I'm, there's, there's a happy medium there for, for everybody. Um, but for me, less combat, more role-playing. And I think that, for me, miniatures do a couple of things. First of all, it makes combats take a long time. But second of all, it restricts you know, where you can apply your imagination when everything is not abstract in your mind anymore and you can't imagine cool stuff. You're, you're stuck with this physical reality which is represented in front of you. Is that, do you feel a similar way about, about miniatures? Because you, you were saying previously how you don't have any particular feelings for them one way or the other. Um, well, the way I use miniatures, um, I actually... <laughs> I, I play three-dimensionally, so I'll have spiders on the ceiling, spiders on the wall. Right. And um, I have foam pieces that are squares, so like when I am using it, um, they can see it, and it's actually more exciting because then they'll start climbing the walls and hanging right. from things, and, and that makes it more playful. Yes, and having them as foam squares as well, I guess, also puts a little bit more of the imagination back into it because if it's just an abstract thing that's representing something, it doesn't, you know, your this, you know, the idea like a, in Chinese literature of the vacuum, right? Like not describing something always makes it more terrifying than, than spelling it out, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, having using foam squares or something as just proxies for these actual things can, again, engage the imagination of the players as they try to imagine the, the scene. Yeah, I think you have to allow the players to be more imaginative. It's like, okay, here's our super hyper two-dimensional stick figure world, like, here's a way to make it more creative so you can be more creative within it. I mean, um, I, I don't know how to break my players from this. I can just give suggestions of my thoughts to them, you know? Right. Some people are really attached to their miniatures and like to have that physical representation of themselves. I don't know whether part of it is, you know, they want to imagine that they are somebody else and so having a physical representation of that helps to facilitate that transformation or whether they just think the guy looks cool and they want to be able to look at him and so they spend all the time painting him or something like that. Yeah, I think there's that pride. <laughs> it takes so long to do it. I, I've, I've painted a few miniatures in my time, but I'm just like, wow, well, I just wish they came pre-painted and I could just play the game, but, you know, that's, that's part of it. There's a certain satisfaction in it, but while I can really get into painting one guy or a couple of gangers, maybe, for a Necromunda gang, I just the idea of painting masses of these troops is just not... Uh, I, I tried. I tried it. I had this really cool Secret of Nim Warhammer army. My recent ex-husband and I were going to play Warhammer together because I like games, and... Um, I painted maybe six or seven, and I got really into it, and I was going to put fur on where their, like, actual fur, where their little fur hands were. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I've got ADHD. I cannot sit there and do the, paint the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, um, yeah so that was very short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and then I fell asleep while I played it, so. Oh, that's not a good sign. No. <laughs> That may that may not necessarily be the game that's responsible. It might just be being too tired. Because I always I always found the you know, the forty k and that. Well, you know what? 
have you tried Necromunda? Because that's something that I prefer Necromunda definitely to um, to Warhammer or, or 40k. Necromunda is you've got a gang of, of dudes and you only move one person at a time, and it's like two gangs meet somewhere in this like the what do they call it? They call it the hive. They meet in the hive, and these two gangs of dudes meet, and you move your individual guys around so they don't they don't have any sort of like um, tactics where they work together. They, they I mean they do have tactics where they work together. Sorry, but they're not a unit where they all move together. So all of these different gangers have different sort of attributes and I found that to be just the right size because you have like six or seven guys in your gang and the whole game just goes goes that much quicker and maybe you wouldn't fall asleep but maybe it's just... Yeah, I mean we were learning the rules so that was really hard. There's just too many, too many rules for me. I'm an artist. I like to hang out and yeah. make up stories and just moving pieces to kill things isn't fun for me. Um, this last game that I dungeon mastered um, there are supposed to be four encounters, and they only fought one of them. They talked their way out of every other one, and it was right. super creative, and I was very impressed. They did end up sacrificing a player to become a better necromancer. Sure. And um, What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to take one for the team, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And you're not allowed to choose 40K because you just uh, were just talking about then. So, and this doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or it came along at a time in your life when you yeah. had other stuff going on and you always make that association. Yeah, cyberpunk. Anything cyberpunk or the game cyberpunk? Um, um, the, the game cyberpunk. It's called cyberpunk, right? That's what we called it in high school. I'm I've just, been trying. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and now that you say that, I'm starting to worry. There's probably a whole bunch of uh, of cyberpunk to people going, "Oh, you idiots! It's not called that." That's like saying, you know, my. Oh name yeah, is I'm the worst when it comes to geek naming. I'm like, I can barely remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Right. And unless it's sitting in front of me, it doesn't really exist. But so I'm gonna, we're gonna call it cyberpunk. Right. And it has wronged me since I was 15. You spend like. Two days making a character, okay, one day making a character, and then you go to play it, and I guess it's not really the game that I have a problem with, but the, the dungeon master, or the game masters maybe, just did it wrong, and it, I was, I love sci-fi, I mean, I love sci-fi, I like cyborgs, I like altering your, you know, uh, your own body to be cooler, um, but I've never played it right. It always, I was always overboard. <laughs> overboard. The story dug out too long, and it was like, it was always gray in my head. Right. Very sterile and annoying. But I really want to play. Maybe, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> um. I'm very, I'm upset with it, so therefore. For this answer, it's so it must die. And one thing that you brought up there is, and I, and I again, um, it's my podcast. So I'll talk about my book. But one of the things that I said is that I think that the very worst thing that you can do as a game master is say, okay, we're going to play game X. And you make the characters come over, and then they get all excited about this game they're going to play. And you make a character, and you make a character, and then that's it. And then you don't let them start the game until until next week. To my mind, it's kind of like the example of saving up for a Ferrari, buying the Ferrari, and then parking it in your garage for a week. You're like, I yeah. just bought it, I've just got it, and now I'm going to wait before I can... This doesn't make any sense. So my <laughs> number one piece of advice, at least along when it comes to starting a game, is don't make people do a whole 
obsession of making up a character. Let them come in, let them make up the character, and at least let them take it out for a spin before you, you send them away again. You don't want to you don't want to lose lose people. And it sounds like you had a similar experience to me. Although your character didn't die straight away, the first game I played was Traveler, and I took hours to make a character, and then it died before I got a chance to play. And so, so that's just me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they get that's that the realism in, right? Like, do you want the realism? You know, where you you know, if you want extra skills, then you know you've got to be at such an, you've got to be in the space marines or whatever it might happen to be for however long, and then you know there's always a chance you're going to die if you want more skills. But I don't know. I was kind of in the type of game where you know you're asked along to play a game, but all you really are is is uh, somebody who's rolling the dice because the game master's actually playing your character for you, right? Like you're kind of like, yeah. okay, sure, but you want to do this skill with this, do you? And Sure, I guess. I don't know what that skill is or what I'm doing, but sh- sure, I'll go along with that. But I never even got to that stage. I just got killed, and then that was the end of oh. the <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh are there any games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to, other than your own, of course? Um... You mean there's more than just Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> well, interestingly, apparently, um, not yesterday, but the day before, Monty Cook uh, left the development team for Dungeons & Dragons Next or Dungeons & Dragons 5, depending on what you're, uh, what you're, you're calling it. Um, did you read about that? No, I, I haven't. I was supposed to play test it, but I had to work. <laughs> Well, you know, you've got to you've got to make money. That's the other thing about uh, about role playing is that, uh, and hopefully, when I get you back to talk about you know developing a game, that's one of the things, one of the realities you've got to kind of reconcile yourself to is that you know role playing for only a very very small number of people can be a can be a full time job, right? You've got to work for Wizards of the Coast and be part of a really massive product line to actually turn it into a into a career and most of us will have to um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to include you in the us there but though maybe you'll have a fabulously popular game and you'll be you know uh, sleeping on a bed of 20 sided dice and uh, <laughs> you know, blowing your nose on character sheets left right and center but um, you know you, you have to reconcile yourself at least to a degree to you know satisfying yourself with what you produce because chances are um, you're not going to be able to you know put food on the table or maintain the type of lifestyle that you perhaps have even now with your, your regular nine to five jobs. So, you know, you're always going to be making those sort of sort of concessions and and yeah. I doubt that Monty Cook's in the same boat, but but now Well, I mean my whole life is role playing games. I mean I'm there was a point where I was at meltdown for four days a week and um, you know, I do podcasts about role playing and I'm always playing with people, and now I uh, have a YouTube channel that's all role-playing game, like, it's all role-playing based, so, I mean, I only have so much time in the day, I'm making a comic book too, so that's actual literal time, so it's, I mean, my, my fantasy um, stuff is getting in the way of my fantasy creation. Right. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you should say that because I was watching the uh, video that you had on your your blog there, the sort of the the um, TED uh, Cincinnati talk by David Mack about doing you know doing what you love, and one of the things that he said which resonated with me was that you know whatever you really love doing between the ages of nine and twelve is something that you you should probably be doing for a career. That is, if if your your idea of having a good life is doing something that you love, and I remember. When I was around about that age, my mum and dad had a had a typewriter, and I remember writing, you know, my version of fantasy novels and putting together my version of, <laughs> of fantasy games and thinking about how it 
could be that I could actually write to TSR um, and actually get a, get a job, you know, doing that type of thing. And 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 so yeah, so when when he was when he was saying that, I was thinking, you know what, that's actually that's actually accurate, at least for me. That's that's exactly what I was doing at, at that age. What about yourself? Um, well, I was reading a lot of fantasy books, and um, I was drawing lots and lots of dragons and wizards, and I think I was reading uh, Lord of the Rings right around that time. Um, yeah, so I was immersed into, like, role-playing well, not really. It's like role-playing in myself, I guess, is what I would think. Because I would put myself in the character situations and, and continue the fantasy after the book was over. Right. Um, lots of drawing, all that stuff. So I, I'm doing exactly what I was doing X amount of years ago. <laughs> right. The, uh, the, for, for Choose Your Own Adventure... Um, and then fighting fancy was a real um, revelation for for me. I hadn't sort of associated that with with role playing yet. But the very first um, I, the contact I had with those, I read a uh, I had a there was a book club at my school, like you know, like Scholastic or it was called Lucky Book Club uh, where I was from. But I remember I got a you could buy a lucky grab bag, so you'd spend like fifteen dollars or whatever it might happen to have been, and then they'd send you a big bag full of books, I guess ones they couldn't move or whatever it might happen to be, and you'd get all these really weird books. Like I got the Star Wars Book of Space and Science or something like that, and I got some other really weird storybooks. So one of the things that was in there was the Mystery of Chimney Rock, which I think is like number five in the Choose Your Own Adventure um, series, and there was a cat in it and stuff. And so you know, I was nice to this cat, and I ended up winning this this. Uh, this choose your own adventure like I got the best outcome that it was, was possible to get and I after that I was just captivated with the idea and then I had fighting fantasy and and then Traveller unfortunately and then years after that Dungeons and Dragons but did you did you get into those books as well like you mentioned choose your own adventure earlier on but uh, yeah yeah those were I was really big on those um, funny enough of those I was really drawn to the science fiction ones right like Starship Travel I think was fighting fantasy number four yeah, maybe. I like how you know them. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, it's not everybody that can be as cool as me knowing stuff like that. Um, <laughs> the, on the cover, it's got that guy. Looks like he's playing. Like it always struck me as being like an American football player, and he's got the uh, and he's got the. Um, there's a pyramid in the background, and and a. Yeah, you know, I, I can't describe it any further than that. But but yeah, but interesting. You should say that because even before I'd played Traveller, and not liked it. I didn't like start the Starship Traveler. <laughs> and it's really weird because I loved Star Wars. I really mm-hmm. loved Star Wars. And, yeah, I don't know what it is, but uh, I mentioned it to James in uh, episode 12 as well. Like, for whatever reason, is science fiction and me just, you know, bang heads. We, I never, I can never quite, and I tried to sort of work through that problem that I had by running a, by running a space game, and it just was turned out to be Reservoir Dogs in space. There were there were, there were, there were, la- there were laser beams, but it came all about the characters and nothing to do with space at all because they were stuck in one room. So it could just as easily have been anywhere, right? And just so I couldn't I couldn't work through it. So I'm for, for whatever reason, me and science fiction don't go together. But I guess that's the antithesis of of the uh, or the flip side of you know having that role playing soulmate. My my not role playing soulmate. Is definitely Your nemesis. Yeah, that's right. My role, yes, very good. My role playing nemesis is basically anything, uh, anything to do with space, um, and I don't know why that is. It's just one. Of those I things. thought that was going to be my case, and then um, 
three times now I've played the Star Wars. Um, it's like fourth edition, but Star Wars. Right. And I played a Scion, and that made so much sense. I mean, I can't... I love Star Wars, don't get me wrong. I watched it over and over and over. But I can't remember any of the names of anything in there. They're just so far-fetched for me. Right. But, I mean, we have a lot of fun when we're playing it. Um, you have guns instead of bow and arrows. So I think because I know the system, to like 4.0 is the first two, and then last night we played 3.5. Right. Um, and Star Wars, even though my character was drunk the whole time. So that was really easy to play. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find 3.5 and 4.0? I played 3.5. I've not played 4.0, but my understanding is that 4.0 has much more strictly delineated character classes, whereas 3.5 means you could sort of mix and match to create, or you could almost you could tailor your character to exactly the way you wanted it without having to concern yourself too greatly with, with character classes. Is that an error? an accurate characterization of the two, whereas 4th edition is more like 2nd and 1st, and 3.5 is a different creature, or have I got the wrong end of the stick, that stick altogether? Um, 3.5 is fine. I actually like... I like bits and pieces of all of them. Um, 3.5 is less complicated. 4.0, I, I do like the powers. I like the powers a lot, um, because they just give you more numbers to play with. You know, I'm like, but the way I play is I, I list, I lay out all my powers and then, um, you know, it's all coded, color coded and everything. So I, I know what I'm going to do and then I explain what I want to do and then incorporate that into it. Right. That takes so a I don't type really, of DM, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of. They're both too much. <laughs> they're they're more, both more than you need. But um, I, I do like the, the specialization. It's kind of like I like Dragon Age a lot, and I like the specialization of them. I've never gone past level six in anything before, right. like ever, like in my entire seventeen years of playing. <laughs> um, so I can't say what it's like after that. <laughs> I, I always gravitated towards the early levels as, as well. I much prefer the struggle. I like the journey. I don't like the destination. And starting off at first level and, and nurturing that thief through the first four or five levels was always what I found the most satisfying. You know, just just that struggle was, was where it was for me. And, and so I've, um, I think I had one character that might have been level 11 once, but whenever the people that I played with said, well, let's start at 10th level, let's start, like, I'm always like, no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to start where this character is already formed. I want to take them right from, you know, when a giant rat could gnaw their head off. Uh, and I want See, to take them to, to build them, right? But, yeah. I, I think, I think you, 10th level is the cocky level. It's like, if you're, if you're DMing right, you're still putting the fear into them. Right. You know, like, you're going to make your monsters, like, even more interesting and creative. I mean, that's what I would do if I ever played that or if I ever dungeon mastered that. Right. I would just, cause I feel like as you gain level, your monsters are supposed to get more interesting, right? Mm. I, I don't know, so I'm kind of asking. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Dungeons and Dragons, I've played first, first edition. I've played third 
3.5 a little bit, but I didn't get super high level. But my experience has always been with, with you know, first or uh, first or second that type of thing. But the other thing, and it goes back to a little bit to what you were saying before about how you had four encounters lined up, and the characters managed to talk their way out of three of them, and and you really enjoyed that. And that's one of the things that I also enjoy about those first level characters is that you not ev- when you get up to tenth level, and you're a fighter. The only tool you've got is a hammer, and every problem is a nail, right? And so, <laughs> so that, that's all that you can do. I mean, you can always role-play around it, but there's really no need anymore because you don't have to worry about you know, having your head taken off the first encounter you have. But if you're a first-level thief, you've got to avoid the owner of the house because even though he's untrained, he could probably kill you. You've got to avoid the monsters. You've got to find creative ways to get yourself out of all these situations, and it forces you to, to role-play. You can't just, okay, I'm a hammer, here's a nail, boom, and, and, and that's all you do, right? Like, it forces you to find creative ways to deal with any situation but if you're that 10th level character you are the hammer and everything is a nail and that's all you you don't want to do what I say okay you know you're dead or, <laughs> or, or else they're so powerful that okay you know okay I'm not going to do what you say and this is why I'm a bigger hammer you know so I think the interest for me um, is in those lower levels where it forces people to be creative in the way that they they drive their character around but that's just me See, then it's our responsibility as dungeon master, game master, I say dungeon master, I'm old school, as dungeon masters to take away pieces of them. Yes. You know, like, okay, it's easy. You could just solve this by beating it. Mm. I'm not going to let you. Yeah. I'm going to make you think about how, like, ways of doing it differently. Yeah. You know? And you like, uh, especially if there's... I put puzzles in and riddles. Right. Um, and that makes them think of it differently. Yeah, the... the char- that, And that is one of the reasons also that there's a set of modules. Well, not a set of modules, a particular one. Escape from the Caverns of the Slave Lord, which is a first edition module. It's got a pink cover. And on the front of it, there are these dudes and they're fighting giant mushrooms or something. Um, and that's a game that I really liked, but because at the start of the module, all the players find themselves in a room uh, with, with a sandy floor and all of their weapons and armor have been taken away. Nice. So, so again, you know, the, the game becomes like a, a puzzle, and, and I guess in a way that's a common thread with the experiences that I've, I've enjoyed in role-playing is that I like the idea of, of um, you know, finding interesting ways to solve stuff that don't just involve pulling your sword out or, you know, just hanging out until you can until you can cast a, a third level spell, like fifth level magic user, suddenly you've got you've got fireball or eighth level or whatever it might happen to be. You've suddenly got fireball and now everything is just a target for a fireball, right? Yeah, I mean if you want that, go play World of Warcraft. Yeah, for sure. Like you, you don't need to any characterization. No. You know, and you have a ton of gold, so <laughs> That's the main thing, right? Getting gold and killing things with fireball. <laughs> so uh, when you're a GM do you uh, put a lot of specific preparation in, or do you like to sort of uh, sort of daydream your scenarios and then let the players interact with uh, what it is you've been thinking about? Well, I started by playing um, pre-made adventures on Living Forgotten Realms from their archive. Right. So I, I mean, it's just like studying. I would see what it what it takes to play an adventure, and then after doing that for a while 
I kind of got the gist of how it goes. And I guess I used to be an actor too, so that helps. Um, but now I just draw a bunch of hallways and squares and then come up with like a general theme. Someone needs rescuing, somebody needs saving, someone needs, um, yeah, I need you to gather something or whatever. And then I kind of put it together, you know? And then I'm like, I try to be at least a little bit ahead, if not like quite a little bit ahead. Right. So I do like moderate, uh, about an hour's worth before the game. <laughs> right. No, that's because some people are like one for one, right? I, and I think, and, and, and I think this also goes along a little bit with what, whether you're a game master or whether you're a player intrinsically. If you are a, I, my feeling is that if you're a, a game master, like in your heart of hearts, then you're not going to be a one for one because you're, you're, you're satisfied that, you know, you know how to tell a good story. You like the idea of the players interacting with your story and it's not just a maze that they're, that they're moving through. But if it's a struggle for you to be a GM, it's going to take a lot more time for you to prepare to your own satisfaction because you're more worried about the different things that are going to happen. You're trying to nail everything, you nail everything yeah. down. Actually, I learned that in life recently. Um, I used to be a perfectionist. So I couldn't color outside the lines. I had to be, all my lines had to be vectored. And in my life, I was very schedulely, like I had to abide by all these like ideas and rules that I put on myself. And I was stressed out because of all these limitations I put on myself. So um, I started doing life drawing classes and I, I started kind of relaxing when I was like late for things. And I am so much more creative now because of it and it seeped into playing Dungeons and Dragons and coming up with stories and stuff um, if you're relaxed then you can play better <laughs> for sure and I think that part of being relaxed goes along with the, the you know the meaning of the the, you know, the other meaning of the word which is that you know you're more pliable more uh, and more accommodating for the things that are going on around you. you know, you're able to, to bend and, and mold them and, and to a degree, you know, take them and do something useful with them. But if you're just you're rigid and you've got a very you know, a very clearly defined schedule, then you know things are gonna be, you know, bouncing off your schedule, right? Like that's just not gonna yeah. come in. No, that doesn't fit, that's not gonna come in. Whereas if you're more flexible then um, then you can you can say well maybe I can make that work with this and then maybe some interesting synergy will occur where you know something more um, something more satisfying than either one of those events by themselves might have you know it might just create something that's more interesting being open to that I guess is is uh, is what you're uh, is what you're saying right um, listen to us being life coaches that's not really I know <laughs> I'm very zen lately so <laughs> that's right I'll allow it um, so uh, what's your perfect number of people to role play. You sort of mentioned this before, but if you could choose a game and the number of people specifically. I think three for pacing. If you're going to have like a four-hour game, three. If you're going to have a six-hour game or more than four. Players or in total? Um, players. Right. Me and right. the players. Right. Because um, everybody needs attention, and especially with fourth edition, Um Especially with how a lot of people play 4th edition, I should say. Instead of um, thinking about what they're going to do ahead of time, they'll sit and only think about it while they're doing it, mm. and it takes forever. So I think 3 is really good. Um, you can actually get more into um, character development. 
Now, if you're a dungeon master and you want to just do dungeon crawls and you want people to fight things, then yeah, you've got your your old your go getter four. Got your controller and your blah 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a different experience too, right? And as a as somebody who's uh, you know you do your D and D melt, um, but it's a it's a pay for play type thing, right? Do you find that that changes the way that you? Um, but did you find that it changes the way that you are as a DM? Like you kind of go, well, I got to keep this guy happy because he's got to come back next week, or I want to keep that person happy. So you kind of do you find you kind of have to not be yourself? Um, I'm always myself, <laughs> and at first I was really sensitive to that. I was like, okay, well, you know, all right, guys, we'll do this. Okay, well, we're going to have to do this. Nobody kill anybody. Um, but we have house rules. Right. Like, you can't play evil characters because there's there's not ongoing campaigns. Right. I, I feel like it's appropriate if you're going to have an ongoing campaign. We had a couple that were... Um, Guys that came like for two months straight, but they kept playing evil characters. And if you're gonna play a four-hour game, you're kind of ruining it for everybody if yeah. you're not playing along. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no question of that. And that's also true of, of uh, uh, convention games. You know, you're like these people only have so many slots, and this person over here is being a dick. How do I, how do I undick them so that they don't make this an unpleasant experience for everybody? I've got two choices. Do I kill them? Do I ignore them? What do I do with this person? Because in a regular home game, you don't have that same sort of pressure because you're with friends, right? And if people, somebody's being a dick, you say, look, if you're going to keep doing it like that, then this is not going to work, right? But in a but in a, you know, a convention setting, you don't have that same you, know, you don't have that same latitude, so Yeah. Um, I've reprimanded a couple people and a lot of times players <laughs> get along and so I just move them to other tables. Yeah. Um, right. Some people come back. Actually, you know what? The people that don't belong get weeded out yeah. naturally. It's very organic. Um, people want to play with other people, but they don't want to play with all other people. So yeah. it's for us, it's not about the numbers of people playing. We want the quality of people playing. Yeah. So if, if we only have two tables going for a month, that's fine because we want those people to be happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So... Considering, you know, your uh, career in the porn industry, do you get people coming to your games for the wrong reasons? No, actually. Um, Dungeons & Dragons is very specific. You only go and play if you get it. So um, I've been out of the industry for about three years. Um, the, my fans, I guess I would call them, the people that watched, um, they've been really supportive. Like, really supportive. Way more supportive than... Um, like people that are just now hearing that I did that. Right. Um, so when they come and play, they get rid they're like, there's this kind of quiet respect. They're like, Oh, you're also a cool chick that likes to play cool games. Like that's really neat. And you know, sometimes you'll get somebody that stands a little too close or hug. I'm a hugger. So I hug everybody. Someone that hugs a little too long or, um, <laughs> You know, someone that <laughs> like like two and a half hours. You mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I'm, but I'm used to that because I I went to a lot of conventions. I know. I just yeah. I mean, I take my hat off to you, but I think that having to be nice to people. I mean, I I'm, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm antisocial, but for the most part, my group of friends is 
pretty small. Has been has been all my life, and I and I struggle with uh, you know like even party situations. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm you know agoraphobic, but I find having forced conversations with people the most intensely uncomfortable thing. You know how people some people's number one fear is speaking in front of a room of people. Sign me up. I'll do that any day than talking to one person about the fucking weather. I will any day. I don't want to. I don't want to. I just, you know, and I, and I, that's my biggest number one fear. Just thinking about it now makes my, makes me, oh, makes me well, uncomfortable. That's the thing is, um, like I've, maybe it's my personality. Um, I thrive in group settings. So when I created D&D Melt, I opened arm, welcomed everybody in. And so I already relate to everybody. Right. And I'm interested in everything they have to say. And when they find out that I did adult stuff, they're like, sometimes they have a lot of questions. And I'm pretty forward. And I'm like, yeah, let's not talk about that anymore. I'm done. I answered enough questions. I'm here to role play. I'm not here to like talk about anything else. Yeah. Because you know? there's a line between being a geek and being... Um, uh, doing adult stuff, you kind of don't really cross them, you know. Like role playing satisfies me on a different level than uh, like adult stuff or sex. Right, but, those are, two, but those are two different things as well, though, right? I mean, if you, yeah, get, you, you know, if they cross over, them. that's great. But yeah, I don't mix them. I actually, one of my Canadian friends gave me. Actually, he let me borrow because he wants me to sign it, and I just haven't given it back. But it's the fantasy, like the erotic book um, for role-playing. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. I mean, there's some of those images of Elmore's are pretty... Although, did, uh, do you know, are you familiar with Elmore's art? Uh-uh. Oh, yeah, he did the art for um, Dragonlance, like a lot of those... Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you know what? Yeah, I'm good with sight, not really um, names. Yeah, and, and the really weird thing about it was, I sort of, when I looked at them, I thought, they all look... Sort of a little. I mean, the style is is unique. I mean, recognisable, I should say. But then I saw him at Gen Con, and I came to this uncomfortable realization that I think there's a little bit of what he looks like in all of his characters. <laughs> and, and I was like, "Oh, that makes me feel a bit. Uh, it makes me feel a little bit." Uh, well, I'm not sure what the right word is here. Like you've been looking at him. Yeah, yeah. A so lot. I, like, now all I can see. Well, yeah, exactly. So now I'm like, okay, all those pictures that I used to really like. Now I don't see them for the characters that they are. I just see um, <laughs> Elmore himself and all of these pictures, and I've lost my, you know, the magic. The kind of like, you know, that idea of the fourth wall. You know, that that magic is kind yeah. of gone for me, and I don't. So yeah, it's, it's really weird. It's, uh, yeah, and I, and I don't know whether that's just my mind doing that to me, but now ever since, whenever I see an Elmore picture, I just remember seeing him sitting mm-hmm. at Gen Con signing pictures next to the artwork that he did, and uh, <laughs> just the juxtaposition of the two together made me make that connection. And that may just be me, but you know, um, maybe if anybody else is affected by that, we can form some kind of support group. Um, <laughs> so you. Um, so you've got that uh, that ability, I guess, to say you know, like that's you know that's enough of, of of talking about porn because I'm not here to to do that. I'm here to do role playing. But at the same time, do you find that's really useful? This kind of leads into the next question: is um, do you find that's really useful as uh, a game master having that you know uh, having that acting experience um, and 
having to play these various different characters, do you find that that helps you in your role-playing? There isn't enough crossover from the sort of things that go on in your game to what's going on in your adult work? Um, no, there is no crossover. It, they're like two totally different worlds to me. I mean, in terms of your, in terms of the, the like, the question that I'm, I'm driving here is, uh, should males play play females? And likewise, should, uh, should females play males? You know, like, is that... Yeah, actually, um, I have this one player who plays a 19-year-old girl, and then that game was on pause, and now he plays a 16-year-old girl, her younger sister. And he's a writer. He's phenomenal. He plays her so well. So I think it's all about how you play, your level of maturity when you play, and why you're playing it. If you want to play a girl just to, like, be saucy and have sex, and that's okay with the rest of the players, then that's fine. Mm. But if you're playing the girl to, like, experience and kind of you know, play, uh, this, this girl that he plays is a real bitch. I don't know if I can say that, but <laughs> yeah, she's really just disturbed. But then he goes in and he plays, um, like why she's so disturbed. You know, it's not just, he's playing an ornery girl. There's like, there's story to it and there's reason. Yeah. That so. was one of the, the, the threads that I've had going through the last three or four games is, most people are okay with the idea of males playing females. Um, and, but one, one of the things, the questions that I ask is when they say, when they say yes, I say, okay, well, if you're, you know, if you're playing a character, then chances are, at least in some respect, you know, you're living vicariously through a character. At least you should be if you're doing it right. Um, and my question is, it's not necessarily something that I believe, but does it depend on whether your game master is capable of accurately responding to you as a female in order for you to get that experience of playing a female. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty insightful, actually, <laughs> that thought. Um, you sound surprised. Yeah, I am surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I can be insightful, goodness me. Oh, no, I mean, like, that's... I, I never really thought about it that way before. Um... So that was one of the main reasons I was so excited to get a female uh, game master on here because I think that you know females in gaming are are pretty rare, and I think that even further than that, game masters that are females are even rarer. I think that probably one in ten women that are ga- that are into role playing actually play game masters. There's even less. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, so that so I was really uh, I was really hopeful that you might be able to uh, shed some light on uh, shed some light on that because um, that's something I'm really interested in uh, in finding out whether you know you can get that more authentic female experience with a female GM. Yeah, I, I mean I think so. Um, I know yeah, my characters right? rain back a little bit for me. Like they they inter- they play their character slightly less lewd. Yes, than they I'm, really are, or than they want to. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I, all I know is my experience from them. Right. But I've played with um, with male DMs and males playing females with me, and that's a completely different experience that I have as a DM. Right. You know, if I'm if I'm just a player next to them, then it's like. They act differently, but if I'm a dungeon master, they're like, well, I think they're afraid because they don't understand the, the female brain anyway, right. so anything could happen. <laughs> sure, 
know? <laughs> and that's that's another thing that I that I'm, I haven't had the experience of. It. I'd be interested to uh, know how it went. Is I've never had a. I've, I've had plenty of females in uh, convention games, but there's not really that same um, capacity for you know character development and. You know the ability to get to know a character. So all of your NPCs, although you give it your heart and soul, they don't really have any space to be anything really other than sort of cardboard cutouts, right? So I'm always interested to know how good my females are to females in the game because I've never had a, a player in my home game who's been a has been a female who can say, you know, like, you know, your women are really terrible, or your women are good, or you seem to understand women, or you've got no idea about women, have you? I'm amazed that you're married, I- type thing. I think, like, NPC females are um, exactly perfect because they're all stereotypical, right? They're always a characterization of what you want, what they are. They're kind of, um, they have to be amplified a little bit one way or another so so that the people that are interacting with them kind of get them a little bit more. Right, and but that's the whole thing about stereotypes, isn't it? I mean, the whole reason that it's a stereotype is because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like there wouldn't an idea like that wouldn't crystallize unless it was something that people had experienced. Not like somebody said this and then everybody just kept on agreeing with them that all women talk in, you know, like high pitched voices and are really naggy, right? Like that's that's inaccurate. That would be an inaccurate stereotype. But you know, to say that in general women are more um, more nurturing, they're more um, more sensitive, that type of thing would be would be accurate. And so playing your characters oh, with, yeah. that, with that with that type of bent. Yeah, so I'd always be interested to see, you know, how how accurate my uh, how accurate my my women play, whether I'm doing a very good representation of them or not. You know, having you know lived with women, and my mother's obviously a woman, and uh, I didn't have any sisters, but you know, it, it, you've got you can't help but but pick up some of the uh, some of the the you know some of the traits along the way, and so you, know, you should be able to. Yeah, I think as, if you've ever seen a movie, or if you've ever seen a video game. With characters in it, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, that's really what we pick up our stereotypes from when we're, when we're doing these things, right? Mm. Like, for me, it's, I'm a storyteller, I'm telling a story, it's kind of like a movie, because we're imagining it. Um, yeah. So, you pull from what you know. Yes. Right? So, every character you've ever seen cross your eyeballs, that's kind of what comes out. So, I'm sure you're fine. I mean, I'm a female, and if I have a male NPC, like, I caught myself in the beginning uh, playing them too female, and now I'm, like, a little more confident playing them, like, like the men that they are, so... That's right. Us manly men need to be confident and uh, not, <laughs> not, not so sensitive. <laughs> Some of them are whiny, so... <laughs> That's true. But um, going back to the, like, the like being female playing... Uh, in a game and like how it all interacts and yes. how different people play. So in Zach's campaign, for I hit it with my axe, um, and even when we're not playing that specific campaign, I find that when we play as girls, we think completely differently. But when we play as porn stars and strippers and dominatrixes that are playing characters, um, we think really differently. <laughs> And uh, we bring, like, a whole different element that, um, especially the new players, they bring a different element in. Um, One of the things that I find interesting when people have been playing for so long, they play the same way that they've played for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And um, 
playing with this group of women has been so creative for me. It's like, okay, what what is okay? You know, noticing that guys will pull back a little bit if I'm DMing and like the the male female dynamic is pretty phenomenal. But when the girls play together, anything goes, and they don't they're not shy about using their wiles to get what they want. You know, and most of these women, even though they do porn and stuff, like they would never do that, like on the street, you know, or at a or wherever they would use their wells. Right. You know, so the fact that they would do stuff like that or... Not even to get a good deal on a car or something like that? <laughs> well, <laughs> Are you sure now? Come on, hand on your heart. I, I did just get a smart car, so that would be weird if I tried to use my wells to to get a smart car. <laughs> get a better deal on a smart car, maybe. Come on, what's, what's the point in uh, what's the point in having feminine wilds if you're not going to use them, right? Like they're not just like latent things. Surely you must be using them subconsciously. Surely. Yeah, well, maybe it's like an age thing too. I mean, I'll be 32, so it's like I it, it, the dynamic changes throughout your life. You know, you're always evolving creatures, right? Yeah, exactly. So when I played when I was younger. Of course, I was always playing some bard belly dancer chick and and uh, beefy characters, really conniving and sneaky. I'm very parental now. I don't have any kids, but I am very like maternal and, and like organizing groups and stuff. So I'm very overly helpful when I play. So there's that. <laughs> that was something that Chris uh, from episode five was was saying. For the first few years that I, I role-played with him, uh, he hadn't really come out to himself as uh, as gay. And then, even pre-dating, when I started playing with him, um, when he looked back in retrospect, he said that uh, a lot of the things that he was dealing with uh, manifested themselves in sort of metaphorical fashion, nothing nothing you know, uh, specific, but met- manifested themselves in some of the stories that he told and some of the... the um, the interactions that he that the or some of the development that his, his NPCs and so forth went through, and then uh, and, and so he found that in retrospect, a lot of that stuff was um, was quite cathartic and uh, and was a way that subconsciously, at least, uh, he was working through some of those some of those issues. And and do you think that role playing has real value as being um, Cathartic. Like, can you get something out of role playing over and above from just uh, entertainment? Um, yeah, I mean, I've certainly played angry before. <laughs> 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 um, I've played. Um, I've played differently with the same character based on what I'm experiencing in my real life. You know, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll work things out. Sometimes I'll be more like talkative. Like my character will want to like work out things if I'm doing that. So, I mean, role playing is pretty phenomenal that way. I mean, a lot of people play characters that are similar to them anyway. Yeah, well, that's the thing that I really struggle with when I hear actors on television, you know, talking about how their 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 characters are nothing like them. They're inhabiting inhabiting a, a completely different headspace. And I and although to a degree, I think that you can divorce yourself from the role that you're playing, it's impossible to completely divorce yourself from your experiences that you're pouring into that that character. So I really struggle with that idea of um, something being completely 
unlike you can I mean can you pretend can you think about what you would do and then just do the completely opposite thing or at your core are you always still you know are you able, are you always yourself um, I notice that when people play well, as when I'm watching them as dungeon masters and they're like as a dungeon master and they're trying to play something that they normally don't play um, they can't help but fall back to their normal way of playing you know and even if it's every once in a while it's still there Mm. And see the struggle in them, and then they don't enjoy it as much. It's kind of like working. Yeah. You know? (laughs) If you don't do what you love, then, you know, I love being a rogue. I will always love being a rogue. Right. And a second thing that Chris was saying, and it goes a little bit again, what you're saying about when the girls get together, they, they play completely differently. What he said was, is the group that he played was subsequent to coming out not only to himself, but to the people around him. He actually moved to a separate city, so I didn't play with him again after that. But he said that the type of game um, that he played and the sort of um, the moral compass of the um, group was was very was very different. Do you find that when you're playing with other porn actresses? Is that what you meant, or did you mean? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> You know, sometimes depending on which ones, because everybody is so completely dynamic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes it'll be very, like, angsty. Yeah. You know. Emo. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be very um, save the world. Sometimes it's everyone for themselves. So, but maybe it's dynamic because women are like that. I don't know. Yeah. I only know what being a woman is like. I don't know what being a dad is like. <laughs> sure. Well, the the other thing I was going to uh, bring up uh, in line with playing a, a, an all girl group, um, particularly if it's going in the sort of that angsty uh, way, is you know, you've I've often well back in the nineteen eighties when the worst thing you could be was was a man. Um, one of the things that I often heard banded around was, you know, if women were uh, if women ran the world, it'd be a, a wonderful, peaceful place. And I, uh. and I and I couldn't thinking to myself, you know, if you uh, if you were holding a summit or or a conference or something like that, and, and suddenly Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher showed up in the same dress, you know, whether there'd be some kind of a fist fight in India and and England would go to war. I don't mean to um, suggest that, that fashion is enough to uh, to cause a fight, but in my experience, and I and I haven't seen that many, but when women fight, you know, men sort of have rules. And when women fight, it's like whatever I can, whatever I can say to you, whatever I can do to you to hurt you the most. That's what's gonna, that's what's gonna happen. And do you do, have, have there ever been any fights in, in games you've been in, like where the where the actual game itself is spilled over into the into reality? And well, I mean, there was that one time where I died. My favorite character, Mirror, died, and then one of the girls said something, and I was like really hurt and I think I may have cried and I was really angry but we're like all BFF so <laughs> there's no crying in role playing come on yeah but like <laughs> the actual gameplay oh women are far more creative and conniving than guys like you give a, a group of girls and a group of guys um, who have been playing for you know a couple times more the same situation and a woman will just women will tear it apart like in uh, like like ways that you'd be like, what? Why would you do that? Nobody does that. <laughs> yeah, no hold, more no holds barred, I guess. Oh yeah, I mean, there's, like, there's always like the first layer of what you would do, which is hit something, and then there's like the back layer of 
okay, how can I affect your soul? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that was the idea of, you know, like, I'll say whatever, it, you know, whatever I can to, to hurt you the worst, for sure. And do you think that comes from, in general, I mean, it's, it's certainly changed a lot, even in my lifetime, but do you think that comes, uh, that's more because of the sort of social restrictions there are or the social expectations there are for, for women's behavior in public in general? And do you think that role-playing gives people the opportunity to, to really play out exactly the way that they are because women are much more restricted in what they can say and do than, than men are? Or at least yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. Um, women are far more restrained in their aggression mm-hmm. in real life. And um, with role-playing, you can do whatever you want. It's kind of funny. There's this one woman I was playing with recently, and she's kind of shy, kind of nerdy, but when she role-plays, oh, man. She's like a live wire. It's really great to see, actually. Um, and it's an outlet, you know, and I'm, I'm really into people having outlets. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, that, and so as a, as a GM or DM, do you – is it your job – to pick up on somebody that's working through something and then try and incorporate it into the story? Or do you like to have a really, like a really strict delineation between, you know, like, we're playing this game, we're not playing, let's fix your life? Um, I let people play the way they, um, the way they want to. So, um, but when I implant, if I do find out that somebody is having a certain kind of day, like I just like to brighten people's day, so I'll make it more intense so that they actually are um, having a better experience than whatever they're going through. Right. So they're actually experiencing and playing the game instead of taking things out on the game. Yeah, sure. I, I see what you mean. That's uh, and I'm, but I get, that comes back to your your nurturing sort of um, mindset that you're in, uh, where you know you want everybody to have a good time. And I think there definitely is the the capacity to you know help somebody have a better day by having something go good for their uh go good go well for their character uh during or interesting the for their character oh. <laughs> <laughs> you like, don't want to handcuff yourself with with it necessarily being good it could just be bad but in an interesting way yeah like i mean one the one player that got sacrificed that was it was so interesting that he was like that's just how it would have role played out like there's no other way like that was really good yeah, having things bad happen to characters, but in a meaningful way, I think is so much easier for people to to stomach. One of the things that I have in my my book is that if you are if you fail, like you rolled a double ones as it is in, in my game, but but a critical failure in general, in some uh, games it's a very bland thing that happens. You know, like you drop your sword or you cut your arm off or, or something like that. But to my way of thinking, to a degree at least. Um, I, I just, I've said, you know, like if the player rolls a double one, then they can actually describe the bad thing that happens. And that gives them a little bit of control over the bad thing that's happening to their character. So it actually becomes more palatable. But, but even more than that, by giving the player the chance to describe their own demise or their own failure, they can actually do it in such a way that's true to their character, like they can fail in character, mm-hmm. rather than just something bad happens that's completely you know, against what it is that their character stands for or, or the way that they view their character. And so giving the player some of that power, such as you were saying with the, with the sacrifice, you know, like they were happy with it because it fitted with the story and it was appropriate for the, for the scenario, but having a, a massive failure that doesn't 
know, massive failure that doesn't sort of fail in line with with their concept of their character, not only has something bad happen, but also in a way changes their character in a in an unpleasant way. And, and my feeling about characters in general is, if you've got a if you've got a character and I'm the GM, then I can affect everything in the world, but I can't choose what happens to you. Only you can choose what happens to you. And so my feeling is, even when it comes to critical failures, if you describe the critical failure, to a degree you're taking some of the control away from that character. And and, and when that happens in games, that's when I see people get the most annoyed, is when something bad happens to their character and they've got no control over it, particularly over the way that uh, it goes wrong. Um, yeah. Um, I actually do the same thing with my character or with my players. I'm like, all right, tell me how it happened. And I mean, they're actually far more creative than I would be because they they have that fear. They're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Now I'm going to think of the worst thing that could possibly happen. And that's the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth, whether they like it or not. That's always how it happens. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> but I find that that, that that actually gives them like it, they're invested in that in that scene or they're invested in that part of the the scene and, and I, in my experience it makes them feel a little bit uh, a little bit better about the nasty stuff that's uh, that's going on. Yeah, I agree. So, do you or should GMs fudge dice rolls? Oh yeah, yeah. You're, I think so. you're emphatically in the in the fudge on the fudge end of the of the dice yeah. roll, and and I think that probably goes along with you know your feeling of um, of trying to create a good an interesting story. Sometimes the dice are good for throwing up interesting things that can happen, but but other times the result doesn't fit in any meaningful way to the story. It's that idea of you know like your the character fails but doesn't get a chance to fail in character. You know, like your story or the, their actions fail, but just the and that's it, right? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit. Yeah, like you fudge a little bit, and it's oh, all yeah, situational. Yeah, sure. But like, I mean, sometimes, like the one where they had all the, they just talked their way out of all the encounters. Um, I didn't fudge any rolls. They actually like I was rolling really bad that day, and um, they explained. They rolled really well, and that was really cool. I mean, if I wanted to be cocky, then I'd be like, nope, now you have to fight these people, you know? Right. Um, but, yeah, I've definitely fudged roles. But like I said, it's all situational. Sure. And for the most part, I find that people are a little bit scared of this fudging roles idea. I would say that, I mean, I've fudged plenty of roles in my time. But I would say that 99.9% of the times I've fudged a role have always been in the character's favor. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> that's the fear for players that you're going that you're cheating somehow. When really you don't have to fudge any roles. If, if you're fighting and your 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 guys are getting defeated, you don't you can fudge roles so they do better if you like. But if if the players like, well, no, you're cheating. You're doing this and the other thing. Then you can just make four more goblins come along and fight them, and it's the same tantamount to the same thing. If you're going to trust me to be in charge of the story, then you have to trust what it is that that I'm doing. And if I want to make this a little bit more difficult, or, or or you know, I want this to nudge things in this way or that way because I'm not going to pay attention to this dice roll, then that's just part of accepting that I'm you know, I, I've put the um, 
that I've put the story together to be as fun for you as, as possible. And that's and, and but yeah, ninety nine percent nine point ninety nine point nine percent of the roles are in favour of the the characters. I don't think that uh, that there's really anything to um, anything for them to fear. Um, yeah, I actually really like to make them. Like when it comes to like attacks when bad guys are attacking them, right. and they're doing really well. Um, yeah, I'll definitely add on more um, damage to my monsters' rolls just right. to make them start fearing. Yeah, yeah. Because if there's no struggle, there's no there's no sense of accomplishment, right? If you put in you know ten kobolds versus a party of you know, six 15th level characters, there's no, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing in there, right? They just wade through them like they're, like they're not even there. So yeah. if the idea is to make things interesting, then you have to, you know, your character has to have some sense of they've got something at stake. If they don't feel like they've got anything at stake, then it's just taking up time in the game. Yeah, exactly. So what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or television show. I don't mean it has to be about role-playing. I mean more like you watched the show or the film um, and you said, wow, that's something that I really want to incorporate into my game. That makes me think of a whole bunch of interesting ideas. Well, one of my favorite TV shows is Fringe. And I know it's very sci-fi, very science, but um, I, I like it because it makes you think outside of the box. And it inspires me with, like, games and stuff. You know, thinking 12-dimensionally. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, every time I watch it, I learn something new, and then I try to incorporate it into um, my game, even if it's on, like, like a very minuscule level. Like, I, I still utilize that a lot. Yeah, that's, you can't, don't exist in a vacuum. Um, and anything that you see is going to is going to affect you in, in some way or another. But even just an I, like a, an idea can easily be morphed to fit any particular milieu or, or genre or setting that you that you might be interested in. So you know that that visual um, component that television and movies have, I find is really useful. I can imagine things in a book, but sometimes it's so far beyond um, anything that I'm familiar with. It just is this sort of hazy notion of a thing, and I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it, but seeing some of these things come to life, I find is really useful in terms of making an accurate description of you know what it is that's that's occurring in in the game, and so in that respect, I find them pretty um, pretty useful tools for me, particularly Sherlock Holmes, um, the new one with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Jude Law, that uh, yeah. Guy Ritchie representation, like the dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, and although it may not be completely period accurate, it's the way that I imagine uh, Victoria looks when somebody's playing it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's you know, that's definitely the most uh, inspiring, or the most, I'm not sure what the word is, the, yeah, the, most, the best film for me anyway, in, in terms of helping out with my role playing. Um, yeah, I mean, everything's you know, like when you when you play a Dungeons and Dragons game, you don't only take from like fantasy things. Like, why limit yourself to what's already like by that tunnel? You know. Mm. Oh, for sure. The just the idea of um, the way that they've managed to evoke fear in, say, a show. Um, if you can incorporate any elements of that, whether it was the lighting, whether it was the music, if you describe this or describe that, you know, you can help to add something to your um, to your game. Um, so, if you could... Oh, sorry. Uh, who's your favourite villain 
and and why. And the reason that I'm asking this question is that, to my mind, your villain is your plot. Like, when you're putting a game together, I think about the end of my game. Like, what I want that final climactic scene to be, or what that final climactic scene is going to say about the story in general. And so by having that destination in mind, I can now pick a path from where the players start with however they develop their character or whatever their character's background might be and some way to weave that into reaching the end of the story. But then once I've got that, the next thing I do is I think about what my villain is. Now, if your villain is something, is someone, I should say, or something that's sentient rather than it being like a meteorite coming towards the Earth or, mm-hmm. or you know, like Godzilla or something like that, this idea of having a... A backstory for your villain and really fleshing them out, seeing how they're going to interact with that path, I think is one of the most important things that um, that you can do as, as a game master. And so, with that in mind, um, are there any particular villains you find inspiring, and why is it that you find them inspiring? Hmm. I've never really um, thought of that before. Um, I love the idea of like the man behind the curtain. Right. Like the whole, um, all these people are doing these bad things and trying to figure out why they're doing them. It's like, oh, well, there's this big, giant, monster bad guy who's going to uh, take over the world unless you, you know, prevent him. So I like that idea of villain, but yeah, I, I don't know about a specific villain. Yeah, a lot of people have chosen things like Hannibal Lecter or, or the Joker or Hans Gruber or, or or somebody like that. Is there any like how do you feel about those um, particular those particular um, villains and the, and the distinction I'm making between uh, those four guys? For example, for the Joker, the Joker is chaos. He's entropy. He wants to you mm-hmm. know put an end to all of the the regular sorts of um, conventions that we observe. As, as human beings, then we've got Hannibal Lecter who's got a very specific set of um, rules that he lives by. They just don't happen to be ours. And and then you've got um, Hans Gruber who is you know all about the money. He's very, very smart and calculating, but ultimately he wants to retire on a beach earning 20% on what it is that he's stolen. So do any one of those three particularly resonate with you or do you like elements of all of them? Um, I like the, um, the, the villain who's doing things his way, even though it's not the way or that other people think. So on the, probably the Hannibal Lecter. Right. Yeah. With Tim in uh, episode 12, uh, we were talking about Lex Luthor and because the comics are written from Superman's perspective, Lex Luthor is the bad guy. But if you were to write that same com- same comic book, but from Lex Luthor's perspective, mm-hmm. Lex Luthor would be the hero, and Superman would be like this predator-type character who is... Now, the predator just wants to kill people, but from Lex Luthor's standpoint, he's completely justified. He sees an alien invader who he wants to destroy. Yeah. And, and there's no way to really fault that, except that the comic book is written through Superman's eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's very clever. And and that goes back to this quote. I'm not sure whose quote it is, but that uh, history is only written by the victor. Mm-hmm. So the only history that we have available to us is from the people that survived it. And they're unlikely to paint what they did in an unfavorable light. They're only going to give their perspective on why what they did was the right thing to do. 
So <laughs> I played a game like that once where we actually were the villains. <laughs> right. right. But were you the villains? You, we, we didn't know we were the villains. Right. And then halfway through the game, we're like, oh my gosh, we are the bad guys. <laughs> right. But but because that was the perspective you had, it wasn't immediately, immediately obvious. It's kind of like a sixth sense type thing, right? Like unless you have a view on the bigger picture and you can see these things in context or from a different perspective. Yes. You don't, and, and that's accurate for, 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 I'm going to go back into life coach mode. That's, you know, that's true for, for the way we go around in our everyday life. The way that we act and behave is the way, according to us, that's the right way to act and behave. But that may rub somebody else up completely the wrong way. But even though it rubs them up completely the wrong way, there's no way to say which one of you is right. And I'm going to quote Ricky Gervais here, um, which is that you know, you're entitled to your, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And you can choose your own opinion, your own reaction, but you can't choose your own facts. Yeah. Right? And yeah. That, and that goes to this idea of, you know, people say there's two sides to every story. And, and I think that's completely inaccurate. I think there are three sides to every story. There's what one person says, there's what another person says, and then there's the truth which lies somewhere in between because everybody's perspective is slightly different on, on any given situation. I agree hundred percent. So, so yes, yeah, so if I'm going to throw aside my philosophical mantle for, for another question there, if you could become <laughs> a, a character in a role playing game, what would it be? And that means like, not, okay, I'm going to play Shadowrun now and I'm going to be a, a decker. Um, I mean, if you Satine could become a character in a specific role playing game, just like that, who would you choose and in what game? What's oh, well, I mean, I'm, like, firmly in love with the mirror character from the I Hit It With My Axe game. Um, way pre-death. <laughs> but, um, yeah, basically it's just me, but, um, you know, stronger, faster, better. Um, because I like me, so I would rather play me as um, an elf. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that um, most people in that choose to be them with that question choose to be themselves, but choose to be able to do magic. Oh, interesting. And I haven't I haven't had your perspective before, but my particular perspective is I want to be in a world where the supernatural exists, mm-hmm. but I want to be um, Fox Mulder or Van Helsing, and I don't know why that is, but I want to fight the insurmountable odds, and I want to destroy the magic and I want to destroy the uh, destroy the supernatural I'm not quite sure why that is but um, I want to be Jet Li <laughs> just, just Jet Li in general or in a specific yeah, way? Oh, yeah in general actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know why it is that I want to destroy all that stuff but yeah Jet Li's pretty uh, pretty awesome yeah um, so do you have any dice superstitions oh yeah um you're not supposed to touch anyone else's dice Especially don't touch their dice cup. That's <laughs> sacred ground. Um, yeah, I discovered Yeah, one of our characters kept doing that, or one of our players kept doing that, and um, he only rolled... He must have rolled ones for three months straight. <laughs> yeah, that's just, you know... Yeah, I made, that, I made that mistake at a convention. Uh, I, For whatever reason, my dice went to hand, so I just grabbed the closest dice and rolled them. And, and uh, I've told the story a number of times, but I think you might appreciate it. And she took all her dice off the table and, and put them away and had to get a whole different set of dice out because I'd cursed them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time somebody drops a die and asks me to get it, I do this hesitant thing. I'm like, I reach down, like, um, uh, 
it's just it's not, it's just superstition, and I pick it up and I hand it, and I feel really guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Farrell in uh, episode nine was saying if you don't have any dive superstitions, then you're uh, you're a cold automaton. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm that cold automaton. I don't have any dice superstitions at all. I've never, I never have, and it's got nothing to do with the, um, you know, like me believing that statistics, you know, rule everything. But it just, it just never even occurred to me to have, to have dice superstitions. I guess that comes from playing a lot of board games to start with. Everybody touches the same dice. Everybody rolls uh, the dice, and there's no, you know, you just, you just roll your dice and you play the game, right? But. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, none, none for me. Um, so, what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example of play? <laughs> uh, my role-play elevator pitch. It's like a video game, but without flashing images, and you talk it out and imagine it in your head like a story. It's like story time with your friends, but killing things with dice. <laughs> and, and so what's your conversion rate with that elevator pitch what was that and what's your conversion rate with that elevator pitch um, I think people play because I'm really passionate and I'm a bully so. <laughs> <laughs> a passionate bully you're like you're the, you're the iron fist inside the silk glove is that what you're saying yeah exactly that's exactly what I'm saying I'm like, you want to play just play come on you know and I'll just peer pressure them into sitting down and playing. I think that's what it takes in some instances because, uh, you know, we're, I think, uh, I'm not sure if we're a shrinking hobby or a growing hobby. Have you seen any any stats in it or are we, are we stagnant? Like when one goes out, then one comes in type stuff. I think we're growing, especially now. Um, I think we're in a time where, <sighs> this is what I'm finding through D&D Melt. I've got a ton of girls and they all have the same story. My brother wouldn't let me play when we were little, or they let me play, but then they killed me in five minutes, and it was stupid, but I always always wanted to play, and now I'm 25 or older, and I think it's time. So all these people are coming out of the woodwork (laughs) after getting pushed around as a kid. Wow, I find that so, I just find that staggering. If anybody that that I knew had even the slightest interest in it, whether they were a girl or you know or a muppet or you know anybody anybody at all that wanted to play, I'd be like, yeah, let's play, because I was came from a relatively small town, and other than the people I played with, I didn't know of anybody that played. So, if anybody expressed any interest in it, I would have been, yes, let's play. You know, it doesn't matter that you've never played before. But I have heard that it's that people have been shunned by somebody else that's doing role playing, and I just I. I find that absolutely fascinating and I, I hard to and hard to reconcile. Yeah, it's this. just it's so sad, and I'm really glad to have created a place for those people. <laughs> yeah, well, and also being a girl and being in charge there, that must make it a lot more accessible for for other females as well. Because I uh, just even even at uh, Gen Con and. Um, at Origins last year, I think that the numbers came in around about one third, two thirds. But mm-hmm. because of my experiences with role playing, um, seeing a girl in role playing is really strange, right? I, 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 I wasn't, um, and I wasn't sort of counting, but it was something that would make you sort of go, oh, "That's a girl that's role playing. That's interesting." Um, and so I wonder whether you know there is that because there's still quite a bit of 
people at least of that age, there's still a certain amount of residual shame that goes along with <laughs> with being a role player, right? Like it's not the sort yeah. of thing that you can... And, and also the, the stereotype, which is that it's socially maladjusted guys with, you know, uh, only a passing acquaintance with, with soap and shampoo that sit around eating Cheetos and uh, drink... That's very true, though, still. I mean, I mean, our group happens to be at a in Hollywood, so... Um, we're slightly different because there's a lot of actors and writers and musicians that play and like entertainment people. But generally I feel like that's, that is the stigma because it's true. Yeah. But it doesn't bug me because I just like to play. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And you're prepared to, uh, and, and that was something that I spoke with. Um, I think it might've been Zach and also with Sean from episode four, we talked about this geek social fallacies. I'm not sure if you've taken a look at that website where it sort of says, um, as as outcasts, ultimately, with as as a role player, you know, it's incumbent upon you to include everybody. You can't outcast anybody from from role playing. So even though, oh, you, oh, even, oh. though you, even though you don't want, you wouldn't want to go to the movies with them or go out to dinner with them, you feel compelled uh, in the context of the hobby to be accepting of uh, of everybody. Um, you know what? Can I say something? <laughs> What? Why stop now? <laughs> so I did an interview for io9 about I hit it with my axe, and they were so mean to me. Like I cannot believe it. I had food thrown at me when I was in high school. I paid my dues, yep. you know, and they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. What? How? Like somebody who you know cleans up well with makeup and stuff can, like, be into Dungeons and & Dragons. And they were offended. Like, sp- like in their souls, they were offended yeah. that maybe we're exploiting, you know, the, the genre or the, the system or whatever. And I could not believe it. It was like, here, I'm a multi-ethnic girl from Northern California, and it's hard enough anyway just to get around because, I mean, I'm female and... You know, I'm kind of an outcast, weird artist anyway. And to be shunned by my own peers, like, that was really, really weird and rude and fracked up, and I didn't like it. And I get that a lot. Um, Is that being mean to the pretty girl thing? Like, you can't be nice to the pretty girl because she's only assuming that that you're being nice to her because she's the pretty girl? You know, you must have experienced that, surely. Yeah, I did, but you don't have to be mean. <laughs> I don't think you need to be mean regardless of who you're talking to, but I'm just saying, is it that case of being intimidated, so I'm going to show you how how much I'm not affected by the fact that you're really pretty by being mean to you? Like, you, know, um, you do when you're in high that, school, right? You're like this was more like they were afraid of being exploited. Because, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons is probably one of the most closet games I found so many celebrities that play D and D, and actors and voice actors, and nobody talks about it. Right. It's like being a Freemason. Like nobody <laughs> yeah, talks yeah. about it, yeah. but everybody's doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that. You yeah, know. I, I mean, I don't move in the same circles as you, but that's certainly the thing that there is. That's still that stigma. You don't sort of say you because that immediately puts you in a. I mean, it's. I mean, it's not anything like being gay, but. I do feel a little bit closeted whenever somebody asks me about that. You know, what I what it is that I what it is that I'm doing, what role playing is. Am do I come out? Am I going to out myself by saying, I know I like Dungeons and Dragons or I like role playing? 
and there is still today, and I know, I've said it before, but I still today have that feeling when somebody asks me, like, do I just describe it as Dungeons and Dragons? In which case, you know, I'm, you know, I'm outing myself. Yeah, um, I kind of. <laughs> it's a very similar to when I said I'm doing porn to people. Right. They're like, oh my god. And it's like, I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons. Oh my God. It's like, um, I no longer will worry about what anyone else thinks. So I'm just going to go ahead and do what I do. I just heard this today from some interview. Um, the guy says, you're the author of your own story. Yes. And so I will, I will be playing Dungeons and Dragons and people can make fun of me or, you know, feel weird about me being female and doing it. And I don't care anymore. <laughs> I just don't. Well, good. You're you're a great ambassador for the for the hobby for uh, for girls in general. So here's the big question. This is where you get to show off your uh, show off your credentials. Um, totaling 100 system plus GM plus players. How much do you give to each one? Oh, I had this. I had this earlier. Um, you can take a moment. Actually, like I was thinking about this earlier, and I came up with a different analogy. <laughs> okay, sure. Go ahead, change the goalposts. Change the. <laughs> Gosh, I'm such a game master right now. <laughs> um, I have to hold. On. I have to write it down because it it was really interesting, but I can't remember which one goes where. Yep. Go ahead. So hold on a second. Yeah, take your time. So, in a different setting, it's. The, a plate is the system, uh, the game master is the food, and the player is the person that's eating it. Okay. Does that make any sense at all? Well, I'm with you in terms of the plate and the food and the person eating. I'm just curious to see how this is all going to go together to, to, fit the, uh, to fit the question. So the game master is um, like... The the <laughs> that's really self important if I say that say it that way. But the game master is kind of like like eighty percent of it. You know, it's like you can't eat without the food, um, and the plate is the system. So the system can be anything. Um, a, a bigger plate can hold more food. That's really cool. But the player is kind of just absorbing it all and um, and is the one that can taste the food and say whether or not it was good or it can finish it or not. So it's kind of, it's all interactive that way. That's how I interpreted that question. <laughs> I see. So in that case, it's kind of like the, if a tree falls in the forest <laughs> and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Because if you've got no player, then it doesn't matter how good the food tastes, because you've got no game. Yes. <laughs> if you've got no plate, then does that equate to just telling a story and there is no mechanic at all? Like, does, does the size of the plate, does the analogy fit with, say, for example, a really rules-heavy game as opposed to a, a rules-light game? Yeah, like a rules-heavy game would, ha- would be like one of those cafeteria plates. You're really good at translating this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at drawing pictures. 
Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us um, here today, Satine. I'd love to get you back another time for uh, a conversation, perhaps about the game that uh, you're developing with Keith Baker. So if you'd be willing, I'd love to have you. Oh, I would love to. Thank you very much. This was a delight. Ladies and gentlemen, Satine Phoenix. That's it for episode 14 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. As always, first edition, first pressing copies of Victoria, numbered and signed, can be purchased from hazardgaming.com. However, there are fewer than 20 of those left. You can also buy the PDF from me directly, or you can get it through DriveThruRPG or RPGNow.com. You can also get a version of the book, Print on Demand, through Lulu. If you do a search for Victoria and or Daniel Hodges, you should be able to track it down there. Keen-eared listeners will have no doubt noticed that I misrepresented the authors of Chainmail as being Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. It was, of course, Jeff Perrin and Gary Gygax. And also that I called the module Escape from the Dungeons of the Slave Lords, when in fact it is just Dungeons of the Slave Lord, which is part of the Scourge of the Slave Lord series. And one final addendum. Satine has a new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Phoenix. On the channel, she's going to be giving reviews of various non-Dungeons & Dragons style games from the perspective of somebody who's been a Dungeons & Dragons player now for 20 years. One of the first games she's going to be reviewing is Victoria, so check out youtube.com forward slash Phoenix. On next week's show... I have two of the stars of I Had It With My Ex, Mandy Morbid and Kimberly Kane, kind of, inside the Roleplay Studio, along with Isabel Lilliam. So until next week, keep talking the walk.